is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Episode 8, the Andy Wakefield Podcast. My name is Laurie Gregory, and welcome, Andy Wakefield. Laurie, it's great to be back. Thank you. Here we are again. Here we are again. New decade, new year. New year. Old subject, unfortunately, but one that needs to be addressed. Oh, this must be Dear Brian Deere. Yeah, fascinating subject, really, if you can be dispassionate and stand back and look at this. I mean, I can now, in, in, in far more than I could before. Brian Deere has reared his ugly head again. It really pains me to even mention the fact that he's got a see. book coming out. He's we're, we're, we're podcasting, uh, so people can't see no. the anguish on your face. Well, but no, we, he, he, we, no. we need to position it just a little bit. Because I hear Brian Deere, and what I hear is, I think of John Deere, the tractors, which is completely unrelated. But for your history and your life, Brian Deere is a very seminal figure who emerged in the beginning of you joining this sort of health freedom narrative by default, not like you sort of went seeking it, but it appeared in a path at a poignant moment in time in your career as he sprung up as a quote, scientific journalist, unquote? Is that a Not even that. No, no, no. That's what he calls himself. He's a freelance journalist who was basically dismissed from the Sunday Times and... Of London? Yeah, and latterly found himself as a freelancer writing for them. So he's a failed journalist who by default became a freelancer because he was fired. Failed is a a relative term. Depends on where you stand. Um, He would not consider himself to be a failed journalist. But... It seems it's alarming that the only thing he's really ever written on in the last, or since 2001 almost, is, is me. The and only this, thing this is written. the gentleman to whom uh, you referred a couple episodes ago with a quote that he has a penchant for constructing rather benign sentences that create rat's nests. Rat's con- nest of complexity. Complexity, and, right? This and is the one in the same, right? Yes, he's... Um, he Brian is essentially a hitman for the pharmaceutical industry. I, that's my take hit on hitman for hire. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he was brought in to do a job, and he did it. And uh, in the nineties, nineteen nineties. In in no in two thousand. Two thousands is when he emerged on the scene. Really. So he, I didn't really hear of him until two thousand and four, which is when he published his articles in the Sunday Times. Okay, very interesting. So then he really is a part of this sort of bought science paradigm that we're we've started to see those who think for themselves and like to do research and find things like, you know, quotes from the former New England Journal of Medicine editor who talks about how science is so bought and we we've watched for years you read um Coffee's good for you. And then you go and you read the white paper and you find out that it's sponsored by the coffee industry. So, so much of what we read about and what we see in the white paper space in science and peer review journals is sponsored by the people who have an invested outcome. And it sounds like this guy is a hired gun to help propagate some of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's difficult to pin him down to decide quite what he is, but certainly... Um... He was brought in to do a job, which was to entirely discredit me uh, and therefore the possibility that vaccines, particularly MMR vaccine, could be causally associated with autism in children. 
Well, give, and, a, give us some education about what his handiwork looks like. How to even... The reason we're in the situation we're in now is that he has a book coming out in May, apparently being published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And everything that's been said about me has, has relied almost entirely upon what Brian Deers has construed as, as the, the real story, the real truth. And he's a, an immensely complex character. I think I'm not an expert. He has a sociopathic personality disorder. He's obsessed with himself. He has a sort of a degree of narcissism which borders on the pathological. And, and I say this without meaning to be pejorative about Brian Deer. It's just a fact of the matter. When you read what he writes, mm. it's very strange. Very, very strange. He puts himself at the centre of everything. All decisions are made by, with or from the, you know... All, all roads lead to Brian Deere. All roads lead to Brian Deere. Interesting. He, but he's surfaced again because he's written this book. His job was to entirely discredit me, the bowel disease link with autism, and the associated link with MMR vaccine, all with the aim of discrediting the MMR Autism Association. So that's where we are. And the latest in this episode took place when I attempted to sue Brian Deere and the British Medical Journal. Uh, what happened at the General Medical Council is that we were uh, John Walker Smith from the Royal Free, Simon Murch, his one of his um, academic senior staff, uh, and and I were arraigned in front of the General Medical Council on charges of ethical misconduct and, and other charges that um, in respect of the 12 children that we'd investigated in which the Lancet. Which were part of the white paper that was published in the Lancet, which the Lancet then retracted. This was this is just refreshing for our listeners. Well, it, 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 even the retraction was more complex than just right. a straightforward okay. retraction. But, but um the... Three of us were arraigned before the General Medical Council, which is a regulatory body in the United Kingdom for doctors. So it's composed of doctors and lay people passing judgment on the fitness to practice of doctors. And so the three of us underwent what was the longest hearing ever in the history of the General Medical Council, which uh, ended up with us all three being found guilty of the various charges and two of us having our licenses taken away. The whole thing was really a foregone conclusion. The General Medical Council were given their marching orders by the government and were told to find us guilty. I have absolutely no doubt of that because when it finally came before a proper judiciary, before the English uh, High Court, justice mitting threw the whole thing out completely, he absolutely trashed the General Medical Council, said in effect that they were not fit to hear evidence and that this must never happen again. And um, he reinstated John Walker Smith. I had previously withdrawn my appeal because I didn't, I wasn't funded to fight it. So we'd both appealed against the General Medical Council's decision, but John Walker Smith was able to pursue his appeal because I didn't have the five hundred thousand pounds that was necessary to invest in such a case. So, sadly, well, what 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 happened then, of course, is John Walker Smith was completely. Um, uh, exonerated and reinstated. He got his position back. The um, General Medical Council offered no defence for their appalling behaviour in the in the in the execution of the case. 
And the judge again, as I say, said this must not happen again. And so all of the questions that related to the issues that related to what Mitting, Justice Mitting was talking about were the Lancet paper. All of the reasons the paper was retracted, all of the reasons the paper was criticised were completely overturned. And the paper at that stage, the Lancet paper itself, should have been reinstated in the Lancet because the reasons for its retraction were were overruled by Justice Mitting. They were found to be groundless and the doctors themselves should be reinstated. But unfortunately, there there is no precedent in English law for the reinstatement of an appeal once it's been withdrawn by the defendant. That was me. What an interesting when, predicament. It was. It was. So that seemed to be it. And then I was carrying on the work in looking at these children, looking after these children in Austin, Texas, and, and they were unable to stop it. And they were furious. They were absolutely furious because we went on publishing it. We went on, on it. We went on conducting the research. I'm sorry. I just want to clarify here because there's a lot of, of, of listeners who may not know the full story. So this is the original group of children whose parents had contacted you when you were a practicing gastroenterologist surgeon in the UK, correct? This is this is that is th- th- those are the children who were whose story was described in the Lancet paper. The first twelve children to make contact with me, and the parents had contacted you because they saw common c- symptoms in gut dysbiosis in their children, and they wanted to examine it. And that's why they reached out to a gastroenterologist. Is that correct? Yes, to be specific, absolutely specific. And one of the things that characterizes the next series of podcasts, and so that we can lay this out for people, is what I want to do is present a series of podcasts on an exquisite dissection of those Lancet children, the Lancet 12 children. So What the Lancet paper actually said. Yes. What we actually did at the Royal Free. And I want to lay this out in painfully meticulous detail, as a lawyer would do. And indeed, what I want to do is present the law case that never was. I tried to sue Brian Deere twice. Uh, most most recently in the Texas court. We were denied personal jurisdiction over Brian Deere and the BMJ, and so that case never came to court. The merits of the case were never heard before a court because in spite of all the legal precedent, the appeal court judges decided that I did not have jurisdiction. Right. I think we talked about that in episode five. For those of you listening, if you want to hear more about that, go back and have a listen to episode five. That's, I think, what you were referring to then. So the precedent hadn't been set. It was unsuccessful. They decided there was no jurisdiction. Even though physicians in Texas are making decisions based on what is written. It goes even more deeper than that. It's a catch-22, right? so much deeper. I will... But I will explain that as we go through. That's, a, that's really great. I think that'll be an yeah. excellent choice to lay this out in the coming yeah. podcast. So, and we'll the reason it's going to take that. us a while to do this yeah. is it's so complex. Right. It is so complex, but it's crucial that people understand it. And there's a reason for doing this beyond that, and that is that if people are going to make claim that Andy Wakefield committed fraud, Andy Wakefield's a fraud, he lost his license because he abused you, whatever it is, or even Bill Gates calling me a child killer. You know, if people are going to make those allegations, once this evidence is in the public domain, 
then they are guilty of defamation with malice. Because not only have they defamed me per se, but all of the evidence to the contrary was available in the public domain. And they did not do due diligence, or if they did, they ignored it. So we'll be, we'll be putting narrative. on notice folks that are going to be making these comments. They need to be responsible. And if the facts are out there, which I'm so glad that you're doing that, we really do need to set your record straight because there's been too much confusion. And once you really understand how all of this came about, it's an incredible story. So, all right, well, I've derailed you once again because I, of course, have so many questions that I always want to ask. Let me just make it clear at the beginning that it is not my attempt, my, my wish in any way to infringe people's First Amendment rights. If they want to say things about me, go ahead and say them. That's your right. It's not Brian Deere's right, because Brian Deere is not a citizen or a, a legal alien, therefore he's not entitled to the benefits of the First Amendment. But if you want to say these things, say them. But the First Amendment is no protection against defamation. So if you are going to say them, and they are defamatory, and they are defamation with malice, you need to be held then you need to be held accountable. 100%. So um, please go ahead, by right. all means, and say them. That is your right. Well, this is the cancel culture right now, right? So yeah. you were a part of that before it was even a thing. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing <laughs> know, until this morning. That's right. But, you know, the, the cancel culture equals someone makes an accusation and therefore you are automatically determined to be guilty in the court of public opinion and you're canceled. So whatever it is that is your life will become canceled because someone's made an accusation. You've been living that for 20-something years. So. Well, it's, it's fascinating how easy it is to destroy a scientist Crazy. or a physician's career. Anybody's five minutes. Career. It takes five minutes to Easily. do. And it takes a lifetime, if ever, to, to, build it. to restore. So this is a great place to have a record of that. So I'm I think as long as it's on record. You know, and the important thing is that the vast majority of people... So I'm going to do this as a series of podcasts and as video lectures because then people can see the the data the data the and the references yep. so that they can access if they wish to i just want to clarify one tidbit before you continue and that is for those that don't know the background and the history of the birthday party that we just set that that straight that one detail because so many people that really was a factoid that i think was exploited to try to demonize you where um, children with autism, often it's challenging to even bring them out of the home, right? If they're severe, it's hard to go and do a blood draw. It's hard to go anywhere in public. But these, I, these weren't children with autism. Oh, these were no, not? No, these were healthy children. These oh, were these, my children. <laughs> oh, these were not the children from the Lancet <laughs> no, paper. No, no, no. What we needed were blood samples from healthy children who had been vaccinated who to compare with the blood test results in children oh, got with it. autism. Okay. So we were having a birthday party for my oldest boy, and my wife said, look, we've got all these doctors bringing their children, and uh, why don't I ask them if they'd be happy for their children to provide Did a blood it? sample um, for this comparison. So it was done with fully informed parental and child consent. Okay, got This it. is the essence of ethical medicine, is fully informed child consent. and parental consent in this case. And uh, that's that's how it was done. Now, I was... Uh, Brian Deere said this was unethical. It wasn't unethical. It had followed all of the appropriate medical standards, and it was absolutely fine. 
It was entirely voluntary, and it was done with fully informed consent. And it was really just a matter of convenience. The kids were all in one place. That's right. One of the technical questions is, did it have ethical approval? Did it need ethical approval? Now, what is ethical approval? It's that you have a research committee within the hospital that for patients or people who are patients of the National Health Service, Mm -hmm. that's the UK's uh, National Health Service. Socialized medicine. That's right. They are covered by some appropriate informed consent, whereby that committee has said, yes, this investigation complies with all the requirements for a research study and therefore we allow it to go ahead on this basis. The question was, did these children fall under the need for an, an ethics committee approval? The answer is no. Right. So the, very, the only plank of the argument that was left, that is that this required an ethical approval, was irrelevant. It turns out it didn't matter at all. They were not in those circumstances, patients under the National Health Service, therefore not under the jurisdiction of such a committee making that decision. And so all that was required was parental and child consent. So it was done entirely ethically, but nonetheless, a huge amount was made of it. And a large part of that was that I discussed it at a conference in humorous terms. And it was, that was Perhaps inappropriate, but it was just not illegal by any not means. Not illegal, and it not didn't violate a reason to strike someone off from the medical register. But yet, was the particular point that was used as the reason for retracting the Lancet paper? No, 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 that, no, no, the, no. The, 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 Clarify that, for us, because that was, because those children were not part of the Lancet paper at all. Got those it. those normal <clears throat> blood samples, from yep. show, they were not part of the Lancet paper. Okay. So, and I'll go on to describe in great detail painstaking detail, what the Lancet paper actually was and what it Excellent. represented. So, And we'll do this, but as I say, both as a lecture series and as a podcast. It's and I'll so summarize. important because there's so much yeah. confusion around this issue, and it's so great that you're going to set the record straight on all of this because it's important for the health freedom narrative to know. You know, these are. I, I'm a big believer, and you have to know where you've been to know where you're going. So... Uh, I'm grateful to you for setting all the clarification on all this. And what I think people will come to realize is that there were 13 authors on that paper. 13 authors, many of them who were leaders, some world leaders in their field, who had published thousands of papers between them. Mm -hmm. And we took meticulous care, not only in what we did by way of investigation, but every word in that paper was measured, very, very carefully measured. And this is what will emerge in this analysis. For those of you who endure and stay and listen through it, it's a detailed forensic analysis of medical records and the importance of precision in the writing of a medical paper mm-hmm. and how that is then corrupted by a journalist to become something completely different. Mm. How the meticulous attention to detail and to accuracy in that study then gets ironically turned against the authors to become somehow a sin. And it will, I think it'll be a, a surprise to many, many people, particularly even those who thought they knew the subject uh, very, very well. And I've resisted doing this now because it was all brought together. All of this information was brought together for the 
for the case in Texas, for the case in defamation in Texas. And that was the value of that case, is not only did we... In suing Brian yeah, Deere. Go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brian Deere and the British Medical Journal and Fiona Godley, who's the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal. So it allowed us to go through all of the records, all of the relevant records of these children in great, great detail. Some of those records were not available to us when we wrote the Lancet paper, mm-hmm. but they corroborated everything that was said in the Lancet paper. Wow. So, And I'll go into some detail on those. But it was a wonderful chance to bring this together in a legal document, which then confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything that we did and everything that we said, every claim that was made in the Lancet paper was entirely accurate. And there is no argument about that. And for anyone who goes away and tries to, and, and actually takes the trouble to read these documents, whether they be the affidavits or the source documents that form the basis of the affidavits, they can will only be able to come to the same conclusion. And it will also illustrate how cavalier and how much of a risk was taken by the British Medical Journal, and in particular its editor-in-chief Fiona Godley and her second-in-command, Jane Smith, when making the allegations of fraud. And I just want to give you, let me just give you a flavour of that now. And I'm going to quote from the affidavits. And all of this, these are court documents, they're available at Travis County Court, and anyone can access them should they wish to. Um, These are the quotes from, from the British Medical Journal and from Brian Deere himself. And let me just take this from the British Medical Journal itself. In the first part of a special BMJ series, Brian Deere exposes the bogus data behind the claims that launched a worldwide scare over the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and reveals how the appearance of a link with autism was manufactured at a London medical school. He goes on to say, Wakefield has now been branded by the British Medical Journal a fraudster. They described his work as an elaborate fraud. He also went through the results manually, altering test results and diagnoses and histories of the children so to create the appearance that there was a link between MMR and autism. So these are the kind of allegations that need to be dealt with and will be dealt with in this. But here's an example, just one example. Uh, Deer states on his website that the research conducted the Royal Free and published in the Lancet began with a contract between Wakefield and lawyers. Now that sounds terribly sinister. So Wakefield enters into a legal absolutely. I I enter into this legal contract with lawyers to manufacture a disease. Yes, colluding. Colluding with them to manufacture a disease in these children whose parents are out to make money, I'm out to make money, the lawyers are out to make money, and all of this is the inference that people take away from such a claim. It began with a contract between Wakefield and the lawyers. And where is the... I don't understand where the payoff would be. Well, this is... What would be your motivation Even the statement itself is totally, totally unfounded. But let me go on, because it then becomes implanted in the mind of Fiona Godley at the, at the British Medical Journal. And it write, I write here, this false re- assertion is reiterated and emphasised by Defendant Godley in a draft version of part one of The Secrets. That's the series of articles about me and the BMJ, The Secrets. Brian, 
I would like to add the following couple of sentences, as I don't think it is yet sufficiently clear to the reader that it was the lawsuit that put Wakefield onto the autism side of things. So Godley picks up on Deere's assertion that it all started with lawyers and reinforces that and then wants to add something into the article to um, characterise that further. I certainly hadn't picked up on that until you emphasised it when we met the other day. So, is that true? Did it all start with a contract with lawyers? Because if it did, that would indeed be sinister. It didn't start, as I've asserted, with um, the clinical need to care for these sick children. Mm -hmm. Oh no, it started with you a contract with these sinister with lawyers, lawyers to, to do what? To, pay what? You to, to win money off the poor pharmaceutical companies and to thereby put them out of business? Really? Is that is that what we are led to believe? I now, think if that were the case, then these lawyers with whom you've colluded would have right. happily handled your your appeal case pro bono, right? Because you were in business with them. So, so is it true? Is it actually true? Here is the question to me, the witness at the General Medical Council. Dr. Wakefield, I just want for our present purposes to look please at child two. Child two, in fact, was the child whose mother was the first to contact me. He was designated child two because he was the second child to be investigated at the Royal Free. Mm -hmm. But it was in fact the mother of child two who first contacted me about the sickness in her child, regressive autism or autistic developmental regression and gastrointestinal symptoms. Mm -hmm. I just want for our present purposes, the lawyer says, to look please at child two. It is simply for reference purposes. At this stage, we've heard evidence from Dr. Vosencroft, that's the child's general practitioner, that child two was referred to War Professor Walker Smith by letter on the 29th of June 1995, and that the first outpatient appointment for child two was on the 1st of August 1995. At that stage, June, July, August of 1995, what was the impact of what Mrs. Two, possibly others, had been saying to you on the development? of the hypothesis as it stood in the earlier part of the year when the Lancet paper was published. My response is this. It was absolutely fundamental to the articulation of the hypothesis. Here is a mother, amongst other mothers, who had taken it upon themselves to educate themselves about the gut and the brain and how they might be injured and interact to produce the condition that their child suffered from. As I've said before, the key to the formulation of medical hypotheses must come, must come by necessity from the history and the examination of the patient. And if they do not, then there is no foundation for that hypothesis because that is where it will stake its roots. And this is the classic example of the process, the iterative nature of science. Now, my first encounter with this mother, the child, the mother of child two, was in fact in May of 1995. I did not meet the lawyers until January of the following year. The seven and a half months interval between her contacting me, her alerting me to the problem, not only in her own child, but in many other children who subsequently contacted me towards the end of that year, long before I'd ever heard of 
the lawyer involved in litigation against the pharmaceutical companies or potential litigation, mm -hmm. and most certainly years before I had a contract with this lawyer. So there you have, as a matter of fact, in the written record, the first contact that I have with this mother, and then later, the evidence of my involvement with lawyers. A the full seven and a half months. Absolutely the not. At all. And Brian Deere knew this. Mm. He knew this. But to make Brian Deere's story stick, to make it really sinister, to make it a collusion between me mm -hmm. and the lawyers that was all conjured up to bring a case against the vaccine manufacturers, he had to turn these events around in time. He had to rewrite the story. He had to put my encounters with the lawyers, a contract with the lawyers, before my encounter with the parents of sick children. But here are the facts, demonstrably true. And this case was put to Fiona Godley, who had taken Brian Deere at face value and believed him, when it was so easily demonstrable and known to Brian Deere at the time that it was wrong. But he was defending the pharmaceutical industry from his point of view. And doesn't Fiona Godley and her publication receive funding from the pharmaceutical industry? No, they have, industry? A, they have a contract. They have a, a strategic relationship, with a business relationship with the manufacturers, not just GlaxoSmithKline, All but with four Merck of as well. the serial felon <laughs> vaccine makers. I don't know whether, it, but it's certainly with the makers of MMR vaccine. So, but here is just one example. And so this is the kind of thing that we will be exploring in the court case that never was. And it may be that if Brian Deere's book is published in America, where the issue of jurisdiction is no longer a problem, maybe it'll, be, it'll, maybe it'll become the court case that is. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a 7th Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.